All right. So hello and welcome to the next episode of Fridays with Fintelect. I'm joined today by Christian Bernard, head of the New Zealand FIU, which operates under the New Zealand police. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. And at the outset, uh, may I request you to spend a minute just introducing yourself uh, to our listeners. Sure. So my name's Christian Barnard, uh, and I uh, am the manager of the Financial Intelligence Unit uh, in New Zealand. Uh, I've been with the FIU since July of last year, uh, although um, because as we'll go into New Zealand as a law enforcement FIU, I'm a career uh, police officer. So I've, I've come from a background um, leading uh, team, organised crime teams, as well as uh, serious crime teams. Uh, and I previously worked in the FIU um, as a supervisor. So I've come back into it with a, with a really good knowledge of what uh, our customers are looking for in terms of the product that uh, we're looking to send out. Um, and certainly, um, and certainly uh, it's, it's been really refreshing coming back into the FIU, having been away from uh, the unit for uh, about four years. Excellent. Thanks, uh, Christian. So, Christian, uh, you know, the New Zealand FIU has really been set up as a law enforcement type of FIU, uh, and it fulfills the requirements set out by the AMLCFT Act of 2009, which came into force in 2013. So, could you just give our listeners a quick overview of the FIU, uh, maybe some of the challenges you faced since it was formed, and how it has successfully brought together the financial sector, banks, the reporting entities, both from a regulatory as well as from a development point of view to fulfill its obligations? Sure. So the New Zealand is a small country um, and our government is probably relatively um, streamlined in comparison some of, with some of our larger uh, partner or other countries. Uh, so we only have one police force, which is the New Zealand police. Um, there are other law enforcement functions that are undertaken by other government agencies, um, but uh, the police is the largest with 10,000 um, police officers and about another 2,000 um, employees. Um, the, the other side to it is that uh, because of the relatively low levels of um, corruption, we score um, generally sort of at the number one or the number two spot in, our, in the transparency um, ratings. Um, and, and it means that uh, the police is a, is, is a suitable place for the FIU to be housed. And what that means is that um, we are very closely uh, working on very closely with the, our customers. So we, within the police, we have our district organised crime units. We've got the uh, the national organised crime group, and also our money laundering teams and our asset recovery units. And because uh, we are housed all in the same organisation, it just means that uh, it's it's much um, easier for us to get traction um, for investigations in terms of referring. Um, what we see is um, you know, money laundering and, uh, or criminal offending. Um, but then also um, we are quite integrated in that um, those groups have direct access to a lot of, or the majority of our financial intelligence um, and they are using them in their investigations. Uh, in terms of the broader structure, we, we are simply an FIU. Um, the uh, supervisors sit within other government agencies. So in New Zealand, the act itself is uh, the, the AML CFT Act is administered by the Ministry of Justice, um, but then we have uh, the Reserve Bank that um, is responsible for um, our. That's uh, the Reserve Bank, which is our central bank, is responsible for uh, our uh, banks and um, insurers. Uh, we have uh, the Financial Markets Authority who are responsible for uh, our financial advisors and and uh, stock. You know, anyone involved with the stock market, um, derivatives issuers, and the like. 
Um, and then we have the uh, Department of Internal Affairs and they um, have quite a mix of reporting entities. So they have um, the uh, casinos, um, money remitters, uh, cash transporters, and they've also taken on board all of the um, DNFPPs as part of our uh, phase two, so our lawyers, real estate agents, um, and um, accountants. So, uh, but we work very closely with those with those three agencies, and you know, especially from a when they have a need to undertake um, compliance checks in terms of us supporting them through um, giving them an indication as to the, the nature and quality of the financial intelligence. Um, sorry, that were the suspicious activity and suspicious transaction reports that are being submitted. Um, and we, we, we meet with them regularly um, and have a, have a very good relationship. Right. So, uh, Christian, the uh, NRA or the National Risk Assessment uh, was conducted uh, in New Zealand last year. Uh, could you take us through the uh, methodology and also maybe share some of the key findings really uh, related to mm. threats and vulnerabilities, uh, you know, both domestic, uh, international, and also maybe some of the sector risk assessment? So we, th so this is the third um, iteration of our national risk assessment. Um, the sector supervisors had all, or have also undertaken their own sector risk assessments. Um, so the NRA in terms of methodology drew upon um, the previous work that had been undertaken, the previous two versions of the risk assessment, the sector risk assessment. Um, but in terms of establishing um, you know, and updating our vulnerabilities, um, a range of workshops uh, were held with both um, sector supervisors and other interested um, uh, government agencies and also with the private sector as well. Um, in terms of establishing um, what threats, um, it, what we used to inform our threats, it was primarily done through desk-based reviews, uh, reviews of our um, intelligence products, uh, reviews of our investigations and certainly any in post-termination reports. Uh, so there, there was, um, that were used to inform uh, the, the threats. Now, in terms of the findings, um, we have um, identified that the two most, um, two offences that, that carry the greatest risk of money laundering in New Zealand is drug trafficking uh, and fraud. Uh, tax evasion also is um, an area that has been of concern, um, is, but certainly from a policing perspective, um, the uh, drug trafficking and um, which is valued that we're, there's, a, there's an, an economy well, is valued at, um, at about 750 million uh, New Zealand dollars um, annually, and fraud is uh, valued um, at about 400 million dollars annually. So, um, they, but they, in terms of the in terms of the money laundering risk, um, and the, and our typologies that we've identified as um, as being um, the, the most prevalent or the ones that are the, the highest risks are. Um, money remittance and I guess particularly in the context of drug trafficking um, where a lot of our methamphetamine is uh, bought from offshore, it's manufactured in foreign countries and um, there is a, a need for money to be moved offshore and our, we have quite a, um, an, a, an issue with our um, uh, un either underground remittance or, or um, re you know, small remitters um, behaving in ways that are contrary to the Act um, by moving money on behalf of organised criminal groups. But then also domestically, um, we see real estate um, being used um, as, as quite prevalent for money laundering. Uh, and then cash as well continues to be, probably like most jurisdictions, to be a significant risk. Um, so when we're looking at our asset forfeitures, um, the two categories that dominate are 
real estate, uh, followed by cash seizures. Right. So, uh, Christian, uh, you spoke about the tax evasion uh, as being one of the major risks. Uh, can you uh, share some of the uh, steps uh, taken to ensure that, you know, some of the uh, DNFPBs or uh, let's say gatekeepers are not misusing their positions? Yeah, with the DNFPBs and the gatekeepers, um, it, it's actually uh, in the New Zealand context, it's not so much the tax evasion isn't, isn't that um, the biggest concern. We've got a legacy uh, issue around um, trust and company service providers. Um, and and certainly um, it was recognised um, about 10 years ago that New Zealand was being used. Um, New Zealand corporate or legal structures were being used offshore um, uh, to, uh, to facilitate transnational organised crime. And, and that was, uh, there were some uh, weaknesses in our, um, the way that we, um, around the beneficial ownership for our legal structures, which did result in some high profile and somewhat embarrassing um, incidents um, that brought it, to, brought it to the attention of the government here. Um, for example, in 2012, there was a, uh, a plane that was um, uh, stopped in Thailand uh, that was transporting munitions to North Korea and the company that had rented the plane was a New Zealand registered company. Now, of course, they simply have a nominee director and a, uh, and a, and a nominee officer, but there's actually no um, other footprint here in the country um, and we've seen that as well with um, requests that were received um, from, from overseas um, for other forms of transnational organised um, crime where New Zealand structures have been used to open bank accounts and um, high-risk jurisdictions and, and, and facilitate a range of offences. So the steps that were taken to mitigate that was uh, there was amendments made in 2015 to the Companies Act uh, where um, there was a requirement to have a resident director um, and a number of other um, balance, checks and balances were put in place to ensure that um, to, to, to ensure that beneficial ownership information could be uh, was reported at the time of registration. Um, and then also um, in 2016, um, with the Panama Papers, um, the, we had um, subsequent to that a um, there was a, a, re a review that was done. It was uh, referred to it was known as colloquially as the Sherwin Report. Um, that highlighted issues with our foreign trust um, or use of um, foreign trusts in New Zealand. And so um, that, that, that brought about the creation of a foreign trust register where there's a requirement for the beneficial um, owners of trusts to be uh, recorded and held by, um, in, by Inland Revenue, which is our, uh, who deal with our tax. And they, that, is, that resulted um, in a significant number of the foreign trusts um, being deregistered. Um, and there, there's only a handful of them um, comparative, compared with what um, compared with uh, before the, the changes were made before the introduction of the register which really I guess demonstrated that you know once you shine a light on these things that it, um, it you know it sort of seemingly evaporated um, a, a lot of the nefarious activity that was being used um, that the that the foreign trusts are being used for and certainly the um, in terms of the company's office they have um, systematically worked through and struck off um, hundreds of companies um, that they believe, um, even though there's no offending um, linked to them, but that they, um, through um, and to, you know their own investigations, have determined that it's likely that um, there is some risk being carried with these companies, and they don't appear to have any New Zealand footprint. Right. And uh, Christian, uh, speaking about uh, some of these suspicious uh, activity reports, uh, you know, which you've been seeing over the last few years. Um, you know, are you happy with the uh, quantity of reports received or do you believe that more 
stringent customer due diligence needs to be carried out by certain reporting sectors uh, that will lead to more reports being filed. And also, uh, does the quality uh, of the reports received actually enable you to disseminate them quickly to the appropriate agency for action? Uh, or is there some scope for improvement there uh, with all the reporting entities? So what was, you know, we certainly, um, there has been a trend in terms of the increase in the quality. Um, in fact, um, I've been quite impressed by some of the reporting that we've received where it's been, they've identified, you know, some suspicious activity, but rather than simply identifying the activity, they've actually um, invested quite a significant amount of time conducting their own inquiries and, uh, and pulling on a range of sources and effectively sending it through what would be, um, a view, you know, is almost an intelligence report that you can almost forge straight on to uh, investigators. Um, so uh, the, the numbers have been pretty pretty static. Um, we've received we receive about twelve thousand um, suspicious activity reports annually, and that and that's a figure which is you know it's sort of ranged between eleven thousand and about fourteen thousand <clears> over the uh, over the last um, seven years since twenty thirteen when the act fully came into force. Um, and it's always, in terms of the quality, it's it's always a challenging thing for reporting entities, and because uh, they, they don't have access, of course, to the same amount of intelligence that the police have access to. Um, and they're very much reliant on uh, the questions that they're asking, the customer onboarding, um, that the, um, and then any open source information that's available, and then, and then any, any services that have been paid for. But of course, if you've got, you know, you've got some very motivated people out there who are quite determined to be deceitful, and of course, um, that can be sometimes be challenging, challenging for them to detect. There are some um, things in play that certainly assist with that. So, for example, the police um, across the police, we're continually serving um, financial institutions with production orders in relation to, to criminal offending. So, of course, with that, they get a, a name and they get an offence on the um, production order. So that, of course, should immediately um, uh, cause them to um, commence enhanced customer due diligence on that on that customer um, and uh, just to, you know, to confirm whether or not um, there is anything nefarious going on from their perspective. Um, that carries with it, though, of course, the risk of tipping off the customer. Um, and uh, certainly in, high, in um, more serious cases, we will work with our reporting entities to avoid that uh, from happening, we, you know, to enable them to sort of manage the, manage the risk while at the same time enabling us to, um, to uh, investigate. We also collect, uh, there is also prescribed transaction reporting. So we get, um, we collect every single international funds transfer uh, over $1,000 and every single cash transaction report of, of $10,000 or more. Um, and so we receive annually about 5 million uh, transactions. Um, the, the, that data, there's, there's some additional challenges around how clean that data is. Um, uh, and so often we, when we're looking to use that data, then we have to, uh, um, there has to be a degree of um, cleaning it up before it can be used, um, as you know, because of the um, the variations in names and details that are provided. But it certainly has proven to be quite a also a very rich data source. Right. So uh, moving to uh, maybe a potentially uh, tricky subject. Uh, so you know, at a global level, uh, you know, do you think that the FATF process for mutual evaluation and ranking of countries is uh, democratic? You know, especially you find that many countries have fewer resources in terms of funds, uh, trained people, or access to technology. So, do you think all countries should be painted uh, with the same evaluation brush, 
or should there be different methodologies for countries with different challenges? Uh, also, I mean, I know that FATF is, uh, you know, put out a public consultation. So I think it's in the process of revising its uh, methodology now. But I'd love to get your views on that. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, it's timely for us because we are in the middle of a mutual evaluation. Um, and we, uh, which, so we had our on-site um, back in March. And then we, um, and so we're in the process of, of, of reviewing the, um, uh, the, the first draft. Uh, from a, in terms of, I guess, overall feedback around the mutual evaluation process, I think that um, one thing that's not factored into the mutual evaluation um, is the, I guess, the, the overall risk posed by different jurisdictions. Um, and that, you know, depending on this, the economic footprint that the country has, will. Uh, will actually have a, a greater impact on the risk, particularly from a transnational organised crime perspective. Um, and yet, so for a country like New Zealand, where we've, um, you know, of just a few million people, um, and yet we are sort of ranked against um, uh, financial centres such as the UK or, uh, or the United States, and there seemingly is no, um, uh, seemingly there is no, uh, way to, I guess, account for that disparity because, of course, the um, the when there's a risk identified in one of those larger jurisdictions, that presents a much greater risk to other jurisdictions um, compared to, say, somewhere like New Zealand, where um, we, uh, you know, we, we're we're much smaller, and so when the risk is identified, there is um, it's not there isn't a, a there's no sort of proportional um, way of measuring the impact of New Zealand's money laundering on the rest of the world. Right. So, uh, Christian, uh, you know, in the recent past, uh, public-private partnerships have, uh, you know, uh, become more and more talked about. And, uh, you know, we have cases from the US, from the UK, from Singapore, uh, with varying degrees of success of how these have worked. But uh, I believe New Zealand also has a public-private partnership. So could you describe how it functions and take us through uh, some of the outcomes? Mm. Yeah, so um, in 2017, the, uh, the trial commenced for our public-private partnership. So ours is, relative, is at this stage is a small number of members. So we've got um, the New Zealand Police uh, and New Zealand Customs. But um, in saying that Customs has a thousand uh, customs officers, New Zealand police is a thousand, uh, 10,000 police officers. So, so that in itself gives it, us quite broad law enforcement coverage nationally um, in terms of, you know, making, you know, in terms of um, covering, um, having a quite good representation in terms of the overall criminal offending um, inv or environment um, that we're trying to, to work in. Um, but then we also have the five uh, major banks as members, and so they have 89% of the, um, the the market share for banking, um, and so uh, and and the, we are working through um, both tactical and um, operation, uh, tactical and strategic projects um, with the banks. So from a strategic perspective, um, each of the each of the banks is taking on a, um, a subject um, or a topic that's a risk topic that we're going to use to feed into our national risk assessment, and we are working with them. And so the Topics we're currently working um, with the banks are child, child exploitation, virtual asset service providers, uh, trust and company service, service providers, um, and uh, human trafficking. Um, the uh, and then from a tactical perspective, um, we are engaging and exchanging 
um, with you know, providing them with um, personal information of targets, um, and with and so the so when we have a COVID operation that's pending, um, we have vetted members of the uh, of the banks that um, are able to receive um, receive operational information that we provide them, and then what all that we can do is we can only ask them to then feed that into their risk um, understanding of that, that customer. Um, so, so we can't actually tell, you know, we can't tell the banks what to do with the information, but what we can do is say, you know, this person is under investigation for money laundering. You now have, you know, that you know this information, you now have obligations under the act. And if they do a review of that person's accounts and can't find anything um, unusual, then they're not going to report anything. But of course, if they do do a review and identify, um, transactions that are actually either consistent with the offending that's being alleged or um, or that she's you know that that fall into the category where she report um, that accused so um, we've so that in turn stimulates um, star reporting on some of our um, active um, targets and that is um, a sort of goes towards addressing that issue I talked about earlier we um, you have um, you know, the, the banks or the, the reporting entities, not just the banks, but all reporting entities do have those um, challenges around actually identifying who is a nefarious actor and who isn't, you know, particularly when you've got people who are out there intentionally trying um, to deceive them. Um, but, but the relationship, the financial crime prevention network relationship is um, progressing um, is progressing really well. Um, and we're looking, we'll, we'll be looking to expand um, the membership of the group and then also look at how we can best leverage off the group to get the best possible strategic and, um, and tactical outcomes. Right, excellent. So uh, Christian, uh, what would you say are some of the uh, critical success factors for the country in ensuring that the uh, AML CFT risks are actually minimized in a sustainable manner? Um, I think the key thing from, a, from an enforcement and a compliance perspective is focusing on those identified risks. Um, <clears throat> so for, for us, um, you know, remittance is a key area um, for, you know, and that's a priority area for the Department of Internal, Internal Affairs in terms of actually bringing in, um, you know, remitters um, into the fold and making sure that they are, you know, undertaking the AML CFT obligations. Um, but then also from a law enforcement perspective, actually, um, you know, aggressively prosecuting um, complicit um, professionals. Um, so, and certainly in the New Zealand context, um, uh, we have, you know, um, our money laundering team has prosecuted, um, and, you know, is, you know is, is prosecuting a, a number of different professionals. We've had, including car dealers, um, accountants, and people working in money remittance, and who are, you know, who, and these are people that are at the very top end who are um, actively working um, as part of an organised criminal group to facilitate money laundering on behalf of organised crime groups. Right. And uh, Christian, in closing, what would you say are some of the uh, notable achievements of the New Zealand FIU that you're really proud of? Uh, and uh, what are your ongoing expectations from banks and other reporting entities? So, I mean, the FCPN is something that I'm really, um, really proud of how of the progress that we're making um, in terms of that public-private partnership. It's, um, it's, a, it's a really important um, relationship for us uh, is, you know, in terms of um, having that um, ongoing engagement with um, some of our key re key reporting entities. So that's certainly, from my perspective, is something that um, I, you know, I'm I'm very pleased with how that's progressing. Um, the other area as well is the work that we're doing. Um, the, the New Zealand Police 
um, has, um, as a whole, has five targets, um, one of which directly relates to, um, uh, to, to our business. So there's quite a broad number of targets. So there's a, they want to, there's a 5% reduction on the road toll as one. They want to reduce serious criminal offences by 10,000 um, counted offences. They want, you know, there's a push to get 90% trust and confidence in our customer surveys. Um, we want to um, reduce uh, reoffending by our Māori, which are who are our Indigenous um, people in the, here in New Zealand, by 25%. And then also, finally, um, we want to restrain $500 million in assets. And so, of course, that particular target is one which has been really key for us and certainly working w alongside um, our asset recovery units and, and our um, uh, organised crime groups. Um, and we've been, we've, we're currently um, tracking really well. Um, and most recently, uh, there's a restraint that we made uh, for uh, 140 million New Zealand dollars, which was um, that related to a um, uh, um, an offender who was arrested in Greece, um, who was then extradited to France, and is now uh, and we and we found a whole lot of assets here in New Zealand. And so, and that was just one really good news story that you know of of a number in terms of the. Some of the um, some of the uh, work that the FIU has directly contributed to in terms of um, achieving um, our goal of, of restraining 500 million um, in cash and assets by 2021. Right, and any uh, uh, sort of expectations from your reporting entities? Anything you want to uh, say to them? Well, yeah, certainly for the reporting entities. I mean, I, I am very I am really pleased with that. With the engagement that we're having um, across the sectors, um, and it certainly is, you know, and I acknowledge that it's been challenging for some of our phase two entities. You know, it's uh, they've only been uh, our phase two, which is our lawyers, real estate agents, and accountants, have only been um, progressively brought into the act over the last couple of years, and uh, and so for them, it's quite a major change in their way of thinking. But um, certainly, uh, my um, I've staff that um, are engaged um, with delivering training. Um, on uh, on the reporting of suspicious um, activity reports, prescribed transaction reporting, and and they have been very impressed with the, the high degree of engagement. And of course, I'd just like that to continue. Um, the the key thing is, you know, I think, for any reporting entity, is having a culture from from the very top um, of uh, money of of anti money laundering. It's something which you know you can't just have um, go well. This is a piece of legislation I must comply with. Therefore, I will now appoint a compliance officer. What you need is you need to have the CEO and the and the board of directors right at the very top having that mindset and it's a culture that's driven through the organization because that is how these you know certainly from it you know it's there should be some interest some self interest in and and having that viewpoint because um it, you know when you only need to look to um some jurisdictions most recently in Australia where we've seen some very large banks prosecuted for uh, AML failings um and i and I can't help but think that from a leadership perspective, if the um, if the the CEO and the and the board of directors, you know, and the the, the leadership team of those of those um, of the of a lot of these of of a number of reporting entities um, are really bought into AML and it permeates through the through the business, um, then it'll one it'll it, it's going to um, um, improve the quality of the reporting and 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 it's, and it's not just a tick the box but they'll be actively seeking out um, people that are that are um, actively using the financial system um, to in order to launder money um, and uh, yeah but that's so that's probably that uh, the, probably a key message from my perspective is just that 
is actually making sure that um, the companies, the reporting the companies, that the leadership have a culture of AML uh, and that it's not just treated as a, um, as a something that's bolted onto the side and, and it's a piece and, and, and effectively something that they, they're required to do. Um, because it is important, they, as good corporate citizens, you know, they, they need to be uh, well engaged um, to protect our financial system uh, as much as the public services um, in terms of law enforcement and the sector supervisors. Excellent. Christian, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on this session. It, it was great having you and I think it's going to be very interesting for uh, our listeners. So thanks a lot. I appreciate the time you spent. It's great. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the time.